James Joyce's Ulysses is a work celebrated for its nuanced yet scorching interactions with religion, yet it appears that the critical voice of the Jew is painfully missing, especially on the Jesuit campus of Boston College. That silence ends now. Listen as Harold Koss discusses and reflects upon the great 20th century novel through the lens of his experiences as a Jewish American. Episode 1. Telemachus. Five lines into the novel and the Goyim have already established their dominance. In Troibo at Altare Dei, I will go up to the altar of God. High School Latin, Section 5, Early Christian Liturgy. I knew that the Irish were a zealous bunch, but I didn't realize just how much this novel would be dominated by church sayings and references. And in nomine patris at line 350, and the constant chidings by Haynes for Stephen acting out of orthodoxy. I suppose the saving grace of this chapter is the fact that Buck Mulligan finds the whole business of the Catholic Mass to be the, a bit of a silly game. The holding of the shaving cup like a cup of wine his cantation of the Ballad of Joking Jesus at line 584, and the baptism of his plump body outside of the fort at 729. But maybe this is just Buck Mulligan being his classic, irreverent self. A more sinister form of anti-Semitism comes from the Brit's mouth in line 666, where Haynes cautions that he doesn't want to see my country fall into the hands of the German Jews either. That's our national problem. Haynes is clearly embodying the supremacist and egotistical manner of the British at the turn of the 20th century, and it is clear in these lines that his anti-Semitic fears are one that are shared at home. At a time when Jews were seeking refuge from the pogroms of Russia, the white Europeans of the times were espousing fears over the Jewish question, that being whether or not Jews should be allowed to remain within wealthy European societies. And of course, this is a question that people feel the need to discuss, albeit more discreetly, in the modern day. Even now, I can't tell if Jason Smith was being bigoted or just plain stupid with that comment in Homeroom. Hey, Koss, is it true that your dad is a globalist? And yet, a new perspective arises in this chapter that I've never come across in literature, as of yet concerning my faith. Empathy. After Stephen enumerates the many masters that he has as, as an Irishman must serve, Haynes offhandedly admits that we feel in England that we have treated you rather unfairly. It seems history is to blame. This brazen disregard for England's hand in the subjugation and oppression of the Irish is the same tactic used for millennia to justify the horrific acts and conditions imposed upon Jews. Blaming history in the, is the early 20th century's equivalent of the I-was-just-following-orders defense used almost 40 years later. I cannot help but find it interesting how the Christian hatred for the religions, for the, the religious other extends not only to me, but their own team as well. Stephen gives voice to his people through his cracked looking glass of a servant in a way that can only be understood by a culture that has felt not only oppression, but disrespect for the way they choose to pray. What more, Stephen is a bad Catholic, a jejune, gloomy Jesuit, unwilling to pray for his dying mother. Perhaps there are more similarities than one between him and this bad Jew. Thank you for listening. Tune into the next episode to hear Harold Koss's interaction with bigoted royalty in episode two, Nestor. Episode two, Nestor. Nestor begins with Stephen teaching ancient history to a group of students. The method of rote memorization inflicted upon these children was reminiscent of my Hebrew school days. The recantation of the battles of Pyrrhus rhyme with the fixation over the minutia of ancient prophets and their flock. And how many books are in the Pentateuch? Five, Rav Rosen. Good, Harry. And the Torah in total? I was good with rote memorization less so with the spirit necessary to want to remember these facts. Even Stephen's riddles read like the warning prophecies of Jeremiah, both equally impossible to understand and slightly ominous. I wonder if those students ever wound up remembering Pyrrhus.
Another one of my schools is remembered when Stephen is trying to help Sargent learn his sums. Amor matris, subjective and objective genitive, meaning love of the mother. He states the phrase and breaks the grammatical construction down into the same fashion employed daily during my times in high school. Lasallian Brothers Academy must have thought it rich forcing their students to learn the stuffy antiquated language of their church. All I have to show for it now is a working understanding of legal phrases and the perennial question of how a Jew would wind up going to a Catholic high school. The hallmark of my times in LSA are reflected in Stephen's observations while tutoring in this chapter. Alongside the rote memorization and practicing of sums, there was also a constant emphasis on athletics, although we never played hockey on grass. I suppose the similarities between this fictional private school and my own were that both attempt to strip students of their individuality. Through repetition, dictation, and conformity through sports, the Catholic Church works diligently to remove dissenting belief and opinion in the pursuit of making every student one in Christ. To be fair, this is a goal that is also pursued by synagogues. You don't have your culture survive 2,000 years of diaspora by letting people have their own conscience. Of course, overt anti-Semitism has its own place within this chapter as well, as it had in the last. Mr. D.C. seems almost to be an amalgamation of Haynes and Buck Mulligan, owing to his rationalized hatred for Jews and his boisterous and irreverent attitude. There's honestly very little to say about his character. Line 342, he declares that England is in the hands of the Jews. Page 30, Mr. D.C. proclaims that Ireland has had the honor of being the only country with no Jews, because they never let them in. He is outwardly candid in his anti-Semitism, the only threatening caveat being that he is in a position of academic power that may place gravitas on his words to others. Not only this, but his bigoted opinions sadly convey that the Irish had wholeheartedly adopted the British flavor of anti-Semitism, despite they themselves being an oppressed religious minority. One cannot help but think that this must have been purposeful. Thank you for listening. Tune into the next episode to hear the confusion and uncertainty of the shape-shifting episode of Proteus. Episode 3. Proteus. Stephen's gentle stroll on the beach thankfully lacks any instances of anti-Semitism, which is certainly appreciated. The only aspects that I found noteworthy at the beginning is Stephen's thoughts on Eve after imagining two midwives carrying a misbirth. Eve is, of course, described as without a navel, because she was created by Adam and not born. This imagery reminded me of line 708 in Telemachus, where Buck Mulligan boasted that his twelfth rib is gone. Clearly this is a reference to Adam removing his rib to create Eve. But besides this, I am unsure of what Joyce is attempting to convey with his repeated references to the first humans. At least, the first humans according to my parents. I also found Stephen's depiction of his father at line 62 to be quite relatable. Stephen clearly understands that there is a level of dissatisfaction from his father towards himself, as he asks whether Stephen could have flown a bit higher. Growing up, I was no stranger to this level of feeling like I have let my parents down. It's called Jewish guilt for a reason. Any profession that doesn't require a graduate degree was seen as a waste of time and that you were wasting what God gave you. Usually said with words meant to twist in your gut like a knife. Oh, honey, I'm just saying that we used to have such high hopes for you. Oh, weeping God, indeed. Stephen's brief interaction with the Romani women from afar also caught my attention. He describes her as wearing a brown shawl, suggesting that she is wearing an outfit that covers much of her body. However, Stephen's mind begins to wander to a sexual place when he notes her bare feet in the sand and wonders what flaws on her body may be hidden by night. This information is soon followed by the potential masturbation of Stephen, as he wishes for some woman to touch him. I would venture to guess that he is thinking of the Romani woman while he jerks off. I found this to be a telling sign for the Jewish and other Semitic traditions that often have women cover their bodies to prevent men from lusting towards them. 
However, Stephen proves in this passage that covering one's body still isn't enough to curb men's thoughts, as the hidden nature of their bodies becomes something to fantasize about because of their perceived mystery. Religion may try to do something about it, but men's thoughts will always start between their legs before reaching their brains, even if an entire set of clothing is covering the view. Besides these general cultural references, there was not much to analyze from a Jewish perspective within these pages, as it is clear that Stephen is kinder towards Jewish people, but doesn't spend too much time thinking about them explicitly. Perhaps his Jewish education is to thank for erasing the people who invented his God. Instead, there are plenty more references to Catholic Latin phrases. Omnis caro ad te veniet at 396. Et vidit Deus at 440. I suppose that this is the equivalent of saying silent Hebrew prayers to oneself, but this would be worthless for a Jew. A minion, or quorum of ten people, must be present for a prayer to be valid. So don't expect Jewish versions of Stephen to be walking around all during the day reciting Baruch Adonai and expecting anything besides their own pretension. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we will finally be introduced to everybody's favorite Jewish character in literature in episode four, Calypso. Episode four, Calypso. The inner organs of beasts and fowls. Now there is something that I can identify with. The food served on Jewish holidays and even those eaten daily at a deli, are something that I'm still trying to get used to. I thought my father was joking when we would go to Murray's Delicatessen, and he would say, Baked cow's tongue? There's nothing better than that. Passovers at my house were incomplete without a massive tub of sliced chicken liver, and any special stock would be made with lamb's hooves or other throwaway body parts. Up until now, I have not known the pleasure of eating kidneys, but I'm sure that someday soon a family member will pressure me into trying it. Come on, Harry. Eating chicken gizzards makes you a man. It'll put some hair on your chest. At least I don't have to worry about trying bull testicles. That's usually not found on the menu. I disagree with Bloom's dark interpretation of Israel as a dead land, gray and old. It seems extremely lively and full of culture when I visited. Of course, the modern conflicts that rage on over there would put a sour taste in any person's mouth. I think that it's important to include the good with the bad when thinking about a country or people. America is deeply flawed, outwardly racist and sexist, and annoying as fuck on a daily basis. But I love my friends here. I think that the local sites and activities are enjoyable, and I don't really plan on leaving. What I do feel sometimes is Bloom's sense of pessimism towards the past, present, and future of Jewish people. There has not been a single time in the history of the Jews where some person, religion, or state was trying to do us harm. My trip to Israel featured a visit to Yad Vashem, Jerusalem's memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. One of the things the museum emphasized was that the Holocaust was horrific, but consistent with how others have treated us throughout time. Bloom was thinking these thoughts in a pre-Holocaust era, but all of my thoughts concerning my people are couched in the reality that such a terrible thing could happen again at any time. It gives me a similar feeling of dread and anxiety over what evils or challenges I will have to face because of my religion. I guess I can only hope to have Bloom's level of optimism and positivity. People may put us down because of our God, but that doesn't mean we have to accept it. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment, we'll take a pleasant meander through the flowery words and images of lotus eaters. Episode 5 Lotus Eaters. Lotus Eaters begins with Bloom thinking back to the advertisement he read about Israel and imagining the warm, sunny climate and all of its splendor. My favorite part of his daydream is when he recalls an image of a man in the Dead Sea, floating on his back, reading a book. 
I actually got to swim in the Dead Sea when I visited for my birthright, and this aspect of the water is completely true. Because it's so salty, the water is so dense that you can completely recline and not sink. Of course, when I went into the water, I had a blister on my foot from walking around Jerusalem, and the salt in the water went right into my open scab. It was so bad that I almost immediately had to get out of the water. Lucky for me, there was other activities to do on the waterfront. The mud that surrounds the Dead Sea is rich in minerals, and you can rub it all over your body to help exfoliate and clean your skin. Kind of similar to Bloom's trip to the bathhouse, in a way. I reflected a while on Bloom's quick reflection on his father's suicide. He first reflects on Jewish scripture, in what I think is a classic Bloomism. He thinks about random names from Genesis, such as Rachel and Leah, and then says, The scene he was always talking about, where the old blind Abraham recognizes the voice and puts his fingers on his face. I believe that he is mixing up Abraham with his son, Isaac. In his old age, Isaac becomes blind and infirm, and his two sons prepare to receive his blessing. Jacob, the younger son, wears animal furs on his body and pretends to be his older, hairier brother, Esau. When Jacob goes to Isaac, his father places his hands on him and, feeling the hair in which he believes is his brother's beard, gives him the greatest blessing. I find it very endearing how Bloom has these profound moments of thought, albeit wrong ones, and remembers his father supporting him either way. Every word is so deep, Leopold. I think this speaks volumes about the relationship that the two Blooms had with one another. It is also interesting to note that the Jewish conception of suicide has always been much more different than the Catholic counterpart. While the Torah does preach that suicide is forbidden, and more strictly orthodox sects of Judaism say it is sinful, non-orthodox Jews have long thought that suicide is less of a personal weakness and more of a disease or disorder. Those who commit suicide are not seen as evil, but are thought of with compassion and sorrow. This is different for the Catholics, who think that suicide is so deplorable that those who commit it are not allowed a Christian burial. I think this further informs Bloom's relationship with his father, since he is allowed by his faith to continue thinking fondly of him and mourning his loss, even though he had completed such a terrible act. When Bloom finally reaches the church, it is interesting to see how much of the Catholic Mass that he is familiar with. He knows to stand up at the Gospel, of course, and accurately describes how Catholics almost find sadistic pleasure in the act of confession. Even though he is Jewish, Bloom has certainly been forced to adapt and to learn the culture in which he lives. When I started going to LSU, I asked a professor if I was required to go to the mandatory Masses even though I wasn't Catholic, and I remember his decadently pretentious response. The Catholic Mass is an integral part of this community. It is where all members of this community, both similar and alike and different, come together to be unified through Christ and to show our commitment to one another. So yes, you still have to go. Personally, I thought that a bingo night would be sufficient to achieve this, but apparently it's not. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment, we'll embark on a morbid trip across town and through Bloom's own thoughts in Hades. Episode 6, Hades. I was struck at the beginning of this episode by how Joyce expertly depicts Bloom's treatment by the older men in the group. The carriage ride is defined by tiny slights against Bloom, some for his strange and optimistic demeanor, and others for his religious difference. Bloom is the last one allowed into the carriage at the beginning of the ride. He is constantly spoken over when trying to tell the story of Reuben Jay and his son, and he is chided by the other men for the infidelity of his wife. These little trivi trivializations and slights may come from Bloom's rather innocent and silly character, but are also rooted in his unique position as the only Jew in a group of Christians. These rather banal chidings are accompanied by more charged religious comments as well. 
the two most notable being Martin Cunningham's disfavor of members of the tribe of Reuben, of which he owes money to, and the group of men's condemnation of those that commit suicide. My friend group in high school was very similar to this dynamic. Although I was still a member of the friend group and was generally well-liked, it was inescapable that I was, in some significant way, different from everyone else. These differences were never referenced for the express purpose of hurting me, but bad feelings would always secretly arise within me when my differences were exploited as the butt of a joke, waving slices of bacon from a sandwich in my face, comments about the length of my nose, etc. You are never fully within a friend group, but never fully without either. Later on, Bloom reflects on his daughter Millie and whether he should visit her nearby. He eventually decides against the act, as he is worried that he might catch her with their pants down. I was generally surprised by Bloom's lax opinion about his 15-year-old daughter's sex life. My parents were never as intense about having sex as more orthodox Jewish families, and was immensely better than my Catholic friends had it. If their parents found out about a single blowjob, they would be barred from leaving the house for weeks. But I would consider Bloom to be the most accepting of the possibility of his daughter's promiscuity than anything I've ever really experienced. Maybe it comes from a place of recognizing that he and his wife are guilty of similar sexual deviance. Either way, I found it surprisingly liberal for the early 20th century, and even now to some extent. I had to learn about the birds and the bees through the internet, since my dad never got the nerve to bring it up. He finally got the courage when I was a senior in high school. Hey, Harry, you know about sex, right? Yes, Dad. Don't worry about it. I once again thought it was interesting how much Bloom understands and interacts with the Catholic burial process. For Jews, things are a little different. A vigil is held for the dead body for seven days, known as sitting Shiva, and then the body is immediately buried. Dead bodies also aren't allowed to be embalmed or tampered with, since this would get in the way of decomposition and coming back into the primordial dust. Interesting, then, how Bloom immediately thinks of Patty Dignam's body being sewn shut and plugged with wax. What more, once Dignam's body is in the ground, he thinks, begin to be forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. I like to think that this is a reflection on Bloom's part on the difference between Jewish and Catholic burial. Catholics usually only hold a short wake, a mass service, and a burial, an extremely rushed process compared to the week-long reflexive and reflective mourning period in Judaism. This would explain why Bloom is better with mourning the loss of his father as compared to Simon Dedalus and the loss of his wife. Bloom has had time to process the death and incorporate it into his new life, whereas Simon quickly and literally buried both his emotions and his wife, resulting in a quick outburst of tears when he walks by her grave. Whether one is better than the other, I can't say. But Bloom walked out of this funeral with an admirable level of positivity in comparison. How grand we are this morning. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment, Aeolus will get an earful in the Palace of Modernism. Episode 7 Aeolus An earlier suspicion of mine concerning Bloom's relationship to Ireland is proven true on page 98, where he reflects on how Nanetti was Italian, yet had never seen his real country. When reflecting on how this connects to his own life, Bloom simply states, Ireland is my country. This is significant, since many people that I've talked to believe that Jews have a constant and never-fleeting desire to pack up their bags and move back to the Holy Land. This couldn't be further from the truth. Not to say that living in Israel couldn't be good or even preferable to other places around the world. But the truth is that Jews have been living for so long outside of their ancestral land that many Jews identify closer to the nationality of which they are born into than the one that their religion connects with. Jews have never fully fit into the modern idea of nationality, 
since their religion separates them from the majority population, but the land which they could call home was always kept away from them. Bloom was born in Ireland, and has likely never been, nor ever will be, to the Holy Land. It makes sense, then, that he so clearly believes that he is Irish above all else. After all, it's the only land he's ever known. I feel bad for Bloom on line 118, when he tries to remind Hines that he owes him three bob from three weeks ago. In Bloom's mind, he believes that he was doing Hines a favor by lending him the money, and is being gentle and kind in his attempts to get his money back. Knowing the sentiment of the era, and having heard of other characters in the book talk about the subject, Hines probably approaches this interaction with Bloom as if he were a moneylender, someone to be avoided and someone who will pester you infinitely. The stereotype of Jews as moneylenders was rampant in Europe, as Christianity declared it a sin to practice usury, or the collection of interest on loans, and Jews had no such moral objection. I can't help but wonder, then, if the men that Bloom surrounds himself with only tolerate him or keep him around in the off chance that they require a favorable money loan. Of course, this would be extremely shitty and shallow of them if my theory was correct, but a lot of things were fucked up at the turn of the 20th century. To be fair, people are still fucked up today. I also enjoyed the moment on page 101 where Bloom imagines reading right to left in the style of Hebrew. It's interesting how the way that Patrick Dignam's name is written is not 100% accurate. The actual letters themselves would also have to be flipped alongside the word order for the translation to be complete. While Joyce does a good job of conveying the essence of reading right to left, it is not completely accurate, meaning that Joyce found quite an interesting limitation of language and form through this quick exercise. Another quick episode, when Lanahan is talking to Bloom, he makes a quick reference to the state of his knees, the accumulation of the Anno Domini. Of course, Anno Domini is a purely Catholic measure of time, since it literally refers to the year of the Lord. Bloom likely uses this method of time tracking, but Jews are known for using the Hebrew calendar instead. I wonder if Lenehan's use of religiously clothed language is an intentional jab at Bloom. He could have used any other method of expressing himself, but deliberately chose to reference Christianity when speaking to Bloom. This book is definitely training me to have a better radar for microaggressions. Lastly, the thematic connection of the Irish to the Jews pops up a couple of times in this novel. While I am sure that there will be more instances in the future to discuss this topic more in depth, I will note now that I think it's incredibly interesting how so many oppressed groups connect themselves to the plight of the Jews during Exodus, the Irish and African Americans being the most notable. I wonder if it will be as persuasive an argument in Bloom's Ireland as it was in King Jr.'s America as anti-Semitism was likely more in vogue at his time. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment, we engorge ourselves upon the rich and decadent pages of Chapter 8, Lestragonians. Episode 8, Lestragonians. Lestragonians begins with Bloom encountering a group of Christian YMCA advocates who asks him if he believes that he is saved. It is interesting how they continually use the name Elijah instead of Christ, as this term evokes the fire and brimstone of Old Testament prophets, the prophets that Bloom likely believes in over the ones of the New Testament. Of course, Bloom disregards these proselytizers and considers the whole thing a racket. His opinion on the matter may relate entirely to his profession as an ad salesman, but I believe that Jews are no stranger to the idea of religious advocates preaching nonsense to make a quick buck. A very common sight in Jewish sections of cities or neighborhoods are little street stalls where you can complete the ritual of telephilin. This is where you take a leather strap that is connected to a prayer box and wrap it around your head and your arms. In doing this, people are said to submit to the will of God and bring themselves closer to him. Furthermore, it is supposed to help you to refrain from sinful acts or thoughts. Of course, 
you won't be able to do this ritual unless you make a hefty donation to the men who service the act. In Jerusalem, I had a man on the street come up to me and say, Excuse me, are you Jewish? I figured it was the nose. I instinctively said no, however, since I didn't feel like making a run to the ATM machine to bring myself closer to God. It's a paying game indeed. Bloom continues his skepticism of his Christian neighbors when silently thinking to himself about how Christian families can grow up to be 15 people. Laughing to himself, Bloom says, I'd like to see them do the black fast Yom Kippur. This is an interesting thought, especially following his distrust of the evangelicals that recently passed him. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, and Jews are primarily required to fast from dawn to dusk. While you can also attend synagogue or complete other acts of faith, it is the most important aspect of this ritual to not consume any food or drink for the entire day, so as to bring yourself closer to God through hunger. The fact that Bloom has this thought immediately following his consideration of the Christian proselytizers as scam artists is very telling. Jews aren't able to escape their religious duties through donations or religious shortcuts. They have to do the hard work of fasting and religious adherence in order to be in good standing with the big guy upstairs. No indulgences or saying of the rosary can get in the way of the hard work of religious devotion. Of course, this skepticism between religions is reciprocated towards Bloom. After Bloom leaves, Nosy Flynn and Davy Byrne discuss their suspicions that Mr. Bloom is a member of the Freemasons. They believe that this is why he has been given a leg up in the advertising business, and even that he may have extra information on who will win the Golden Cup horse race later that day. Nosy Flynn claims that he has a source who told him that Bloom is a Freemason, but I would be willing to chalk that assumption up to a run-of-the-mill anti-Semitism. Any action or level of success completed by a Jew in the early 20th century was usually seen with skepticism, as there was certainly not any way that a Jew could do something good or outstanding without the help of a secret international organization. It is interesting, though, since the two men even admit that Bloom is a generally nice guy. This shows the inherent irrationality of anti-Semitism, and how there is a disconnect between what you hear about a person and what that person is actually like. All of the episodes in this chapter suggest that interreligious suspicions were alive and well in 1904 between the Jews and the Catholics. Although slightly different, the same could be said of today. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment... Scylla and Charybdis, a stuffy conversation, and something rotten this way comes. Episode 9, Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla and Charybdis uniquely displays how Jewish conceptions and experiences relate to the world of academia, both as its subject and as display of evidence. First, the chapter reflects how Jews are perceived by the academic community in Europe at the time. We've only seen it briefly before in the novel through Haynes and Mr. Deasy, but this episode reflects how anti-Semitism is not always loud, offensive, and easily detectable. The circle of Catholic intellectuals who watch Stephen deliver his theory about Shakespeare and Hamlet are seemingly innocent in their presentation, but are revealed through their discounting of bloom and general suspicion. Buck Mulligan's louder proclamations against Jews, such as his refrain of referring to God as collector of precipices, do not go challenged by the men, who most certainly have a more refined understanding of theology than the stately, plump man before them. The acceptance of Buck Mulligan's outbursts, combined with the intellectual's estimation of Bloom as an outsider, reflect the common theme of academia in the West being suspicious of Jews. Academic anti-Semitism rarely makes claims such as the existence of a globalist alliance of Jews seeking to take over the world, but instead raise questions about the morality and even the biology of Jews. Stephen brings up the classic example of Jews being allowed to practice usury in Catholic societies on page 169. This practice has led intellectuals to posit Jews as an overall bane upon Christian society, and fundamentally alien to Western European codes of ethics. Furthermore, 
Pop science, such as phrenology and even psychology, would find methods of rationalizing the irrational emotions and fears of prejudice. While the men in the library certainly do not go this far, their silence and subtle distaste for Bloom suggests that they may have some choice thoughts upon the subject. On page 170, Stephen discusses how the institution of religion was established to ensure that a man's property stayed within his possession through the loyalty of his wife. To a Jewish ear, this theory doesn't sound entirely outlandish. Jewish texts such as Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers are literal laws that were meant to govern society and maintain the value of Jewish leaders. This is nothing inherently evil, there is nothing inherently evil about eating pork, and yet rabbis dictate that you never eat it unless they bless it first. Even more re relevant, Hasidic Jewish communities often make women shave their heads and wear shawls to ensure that men will not be attracted to a person's wife. Religion has always been in the business of policing its believers, so Stephen's theory may have more credence than the men in the library initially give him. Personally, I would argue that Catholicism is way harsher upon its believers than Judaism, but I'm sure that it's entirely dependent on your identity and your relationship to others. Either way, religion always boils down to the one admonition, punish me please. Thank you for watching. Tune into the next episode on Wandering Rocks, where we take a bird's eye view of an ordinary day in early modern Dublin. Episode 10, Wandering Rocks. In the previous episode, Scylla and Charybdis, Joyce displays the academic interaction with religion. In Wandering Rocks, we get to see how a leader of said religion actually holds themselves within society. Father John Conmey sees himself as, in every sense of the word, elite. His positions as a religious leader in the heavily Catholic Irish society gives him a level of prestige and value that is unique in Ireland at the time. This reminded me immediately of the position of rabbis in Judaism. Jews don't have a primary leader to look up to like a pope. So rabbis are seen as the definitive leader of a community and the ultimate voice of reason and guidance. Yes, Rav Rosen had more responsibilities than simply teaching me how many books were in the Pentateuch. I never disliked the guy, nor thought he was mean. He did have a level of self-estimation that only comes from being the definitive leader of over 10,000 Jews in the northern New Jersey area. It just feels wrong that a person should feel so above others when they inhabit a position that is supposed to be devoted to helping others and considering them equal to yourself. The only issue comes about when the perk of being locally famous becomes a tool to enrich yourself or put others down. Brother Jason really must have thought he could have gotten away with stealing the donations out of the tabernacle after Ash Wednesday. It's a shame that such a good part-time history teacher turned out to be a klepto. On page 202, we see Martin Cunningham pay a passive-aggressive compliment to the tribe of Israel. While talking to Mr. Powers, he remarks that there is much kindness in the Jew. While this hits my ears as the same type of compliment as, you don't look that ugly today, I think it reflects how Martin Cunningham is actually trying to form his own opinions about Bloom and other Jews that are separate from the general, so the general social stigma placed upon them in Ireland. The meekness and optimism displayed by Bloom during Hades surely left a lasting impression upon Martin Cunningham, and I'm interested to see if this character development progresses or devolves as the story progresses. Wandering Rocks gives the reader the first broad-scale perspective of Dublin and her inhabitants, and the general construction of the chapter highlights a significant aspect of Irish society. Joyce decides to put representations of the church and the state at opposite ends of the chapter, and the individuals re representing each institution never pass one another. This, I believe, reflects how Joyce desired religion to be separated from the affairs of the state, and disapproved of Ireland's conflation of the two institutions. I find it interesting how Joyce argues that such institutions can be separated. Meanwhile, any person who has been on birthright is bound to talk your ear off about how Israel must remain an explicitly Jewish state 
to protect its people and preserve the religion. I think that Israel is a perfect example of what Joyce feared his nation would become, a place where religion is used to further entrench systems of oppression and nests and nets upon its people. Judaism has, in, has a, irreversibly tied its identity to that of the Israeli state, and this anti-modernist chimera has only resulted in hostility and a lack of compassion. If only Bloom had been a politician instead of an ad salesman. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next installment, we feast our ears upon the sweet yet sobering music of sirens. Episode 11, Sirens. I was intrigued by Bloom's catty remarks on Christianity while walking along Wellington Quay. While looking at the wares displayed in the shops, he comes across a store that sells religious iconography, and he thinks about Nanetti's father, who used to sell devotional statues. In response to these thoughts, Bloom cynically thinks, religion pays. I found this simple thought to be quite humorous, as well as revealing. Christianity does, in fact, love to commoditize itself. Indulgences, crucifixes that come in every shape and size, necklaces or Jesus pieces, and much, much more. LSA even sold its own brand of statuette, the school's cult mascot sitting next to baby Jesus in the manger. I'm sure that'll fetch a high price on eBay in a couple of decades. It is interesting, however, because Judaism doesn't really have this phenomenon. Sure, you can make donations, pay for rituals, and buy necklaces, but the sheer level of commoditization and peddling of images and statues just doesn't happen. I don't know if this maybe has to do with the Jews always being on the move, or because such images would easily identify Jews who were trying to hide their religion from an intolerant society. Either way, I'm glad that I don't have to shell out extra money like the Catholics do to prove my devotion to the cause. Joyce presents another interesting perspective upon Bloom midway through the chapter. Whereas Boylan is lauded as the conquering hero as he enters the Ormond, the arranger conversely awards Bloom with the title of unconquered hero. I think that this title says a lot about Bloom and his place as a new model for the modern man. Despite the agony of his impending cuckoldry and the subtle chidings awarded to him by his contemporaries, Bloom never ceases to project a strong sense of optimism and unwillingness to succumb to the slings and arrows constantly thrown at him. This defining character trait was most likely forged by his identity as a Jew. Bloom's identity is one of a millennia-long experience of suspicion, ridicule, oppression, and hate. In the face of such constant disapproval, it is only natural for one to realize that the only way to remain happy in this world is to not let external forces conquer you, whether it be physically or emotionally. Bloom harnesses this willpower of his ancestors not to lash out against others, but to harness his inner good and remain unconquered. In this regard, Joyce displays how the Jews are in fact an identity to be emulated especially in the formation of the new Irish identity. As a modern reader, I think everyone can learn from Bloom and his commitment to compassion and optimism over all else. Thank you for listening to this episode. Continue listening to hear about Bloom, a citizen, and an inability to see eye to eye when we discuss Cyclops. Episode 12, Cyclops. If the entirety of Ulysses thus far has been a slow simmering of the pot of anti-Semitism, then Cyclops represents the boiling point. Both the citizen and the nameless one are overt in their anger and violence towards Bloom, and the true emotion and nature of hatred in Ireland is laid bare for all to see. This episode immediately begins with the nameless one slandering Moses Herzog, a Jewish tea merchant. He immediately begins with a slandering of the man's penis by joking that Herzog is missing a little bit off the top. Not only this, but he jokingly recounts his accent and refers to him as Little Jewy. 
Nowhere else in the novel is anti-Semitism depicted so blatantly and without restraint. The Nameless One clearly hates Jews, and makes no bones about it. Later on, he even reveals that he attended a meeting on foot and mouth disease, a subject in which the prejudiced Mr. D.C. wrote about, and most certainly would have been in attendance for during. In the face of all these prejudices, I can't help but find the irony inherent to the Nameless One. For all of his hatred of the Jews, he occupies a job that is almost ubiquitously associated with Jews in Europe at the time, debt collection. Throughout the novel, individuals chide Bloom and make comments about his potential as a lender of money. Yet a man who wants nothing to do with Jews holds a profession that is incredibly likely to have others perceive him to be Jewish. Perhaps it is this perception that further fuels the nameless one's hatred of the Jews. Not only are they bad to him, but people keep thinking that he is one of them. Even more pugnacious is the character of the citizen, who levies all sorts of claims and insults against Bloom throughout the course of the chapter. The citizen refers to Bloom as a Freemason, as Nosy Flynn did during Lestragonians, and even calls him a bug that has no place in Ireland. When Bloom says that Ireland is his nation, the citizen is so outraged that he spits at Bloom for suggesting that the two men could be from the same place. Later on, Bloom's correct assessment that Jesus himself was a Jew results in the citizen throwing projectiles at the poor man. Although this episode is entirely fueled by alcohol, and the reactions and insults engaged in by the men are abnormally cruel, I believe this episode shows the true nature of each man. After all, alcohol never lies, it only reveals. My earlier suspicion of Martin Cunningham, at least, having his own beliefs about the Jews comes true as he helps Bloom to escape the violence and chidings of the men at the bar. I found Bloom's reflection on his identity to be truly beautiful. He emphasizes to the men how he is being persecuted and subjected to cruel injustice at this very moment. Then he says that the purpose of life is love, or the opposite of hate. This is the culmination of Bloom as the unconquered hero. Even when things get violent and dangerous, he doesn't allow himself to stoop to the level of those that hate. His, he accepts his identity both as an Irishman and as a Jew, and uses these as his sources of strength. Interesting, Bloom's, Bloom's teaching of love is immediately followed by his decision that he must leave. I believe that Joyce intended this episode to evoke the other famous Jew, Jesus. Bloom is persecuted, Bloom teaches the importance of love, and then Bloom is forced to leave. This displays just how irrational the drunk men's hatred is, especially when they try to claim that they are good Christian Irishmen. Bloom is indeed an unconquered hero, and his teaching and living of life does nothing to harm others, but merely puts a looking glass upon others to show just how faulty their ideas and prejudices truly are. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, Nausicaa, Bloom has an explosive interaction with a unique lady as twilight finally comes. Episode 13, Nausicaa. After the frightful episode of Cyclops, there really is nothing in Nausicaa that explicitly or even implicitly refer references Judaism. Sure, Bloom wonders whether his Jewishness would turn away a beautiful Irish woman, but this is as normal as wondering if you look too fat or too ugly to a woman that you're attracted to. Bloom's possible imagination of the entire episode made me wonder whether the characteristics of a quote-unquote perfect Irish girl were similar to Jews of the time. While the standard stereotypes concerning women as caregivers for a house and family is shared between the two cultures, there are more interesting aspects of Jewish attraction that aren't as prevalent in Ireland. For one, there is a strange obsession with maintaining the cleanliness of the woman. In the more strict forms of Judaism, women who are menstruating are not allowed to be touched for seven days until they have washed and finished their period, and women who give birth must receive a ritual cleaning in synagogue after delivering their child. To me, this seems like a further development of the obsession with female cleanliness and virginity. If anything, 
it feels like religion should be more concerned with keeping men clean, since they're always the one getting into messes. Jacob Fielder poured a jar of applesauce on poor Richie Falanga's head during the winter holiday season, for no good reason. He couldn't even wait until we were outside for recess. He just dumped the stuff right into his brown curly hair in front of the world to witness. Surely women are more capable of maintaining their cleanliness than the brutes that I went to school with. Another interesting issue that this chapter deals with is Bloom's masturbation during the fireworks show. Another regulation that Jews share with their goyim counterparts is the absolute stigma towards jerking off. It was the Jews that invented the statute anyway. It was made out of fear of spilling one's seed and offending God. Just like the deal with pork, people now think that this was a form of public incentive to procreate. When you're a desert tribe in need of new kids to defend your kingdom, you're going to force people to use their sperm. I will admit that I never got into trouble for doing this dirty act. Even when I forgot to clear my search history, my mom decided it was a sin that she was willing to overlook, albeit awkwardly. My pride was more hurt than my standing with God, if we're being honest. My Catholic friends had it much worse. Porn and any extra relation marital activities were strictly prohibited and often punished with some sort of revocation of video game access. Ben Grillo got at the worst of it. He got to third base with his girlfriend in his Honda Civic just down the road from his house. Unfortunately for him, it was garbage night and his dad went to the curb just in time to witness the height of the cars bouncing and bobbing. We had to knock on his door for three months to get in contact with him on account of all of his electronics getting taken away. I personally think that this episode was extremely tame in its depiction of a relatively common human process. If Nausicaa was too scandalous for the American censors in the 1920s, then thank God they never got introduced to MTV. Thank you for tuning in. Strap in as we move into Oxen of the Sun where the linguistic traditions of English coalesce into a reading session that lasts for hours. Episode 14, Oxen of the Sun. The first thing that this chapter reminded me of was the inherent penchant of members of the tribe of Israel for the tradition of gossip and couched language. Any person who has ever attended a Jewish family holiday will immediately understand what this means. Instead of saying things in a straightforward manner, aunts and cousins decide to shroud their words in either one of two fashions, that of self-importance or that of intrigue. For example, when Buck Mulligan makes the joke of his belly never bearing a bastard, this reminded me immediately of how cousins and family members will hide their true meanings and intentions in different languages, even if Buck Mulligan was being more overt in his at Yom Kippur, it would have been too easy for Aunt Sarah to simply say that it looked like my sister put on a couple of pounds. Instead, she thought she would be clever by phrasing her thoughts as, Oh, Anna, have you been enjoying your time at college? You look like you've been really letting loose. The same goes for gossip. One time for a family reunion, one of the older cousins couldn't help but speculate on the potential sexuality of another cousin's kid. You know, David absolutely loves to perform in his school's musicals. I wouldn't be surprised if he wound up being a little light in the loafers, if you know what I mean. Nicer and more wordy ways of saying the same thing. Another annoying element of Jewish language that relates to this chapter is the constant praise of doctors and admonition of everyone to become one. Of course, it is a stereotype that Jewish parents only ever want their children to become doctors or lawyers. But this conception speaks to something more intrinsic to Jewish communities than it does a simple preference for certain occupations. In Jewish social groups that are as chatty and full of intrigue, parents who raise successful children are placed at the top of the proverbial food chain. This is because the result of a child's growing up is almost always seen as a reflection on the quality of the parents. Just as Buck Mulligan seems to be up his own ass because of his status as a medical student, so too do Jewish parents partake in the pretension and self-aggrandizement that is seen throughout this episode. 
While, there are, while these examples of success are held on a pedestal, the other kids that don't make as big of a splash are always diminished, no matter how successful they actually are. Stephen and Bloom feel like outsiders within this group of medical students, even though they themselves have their own distinct value and strengths. My sister may be letting loose at college while pursuing an English degree, but that doesn't mean that her value is any lower than that of a doctor or lawyer. Plus, she manages to be her own success without being an absolute prick about it. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, the curtain rises on Nighttown, and a great drama plays out in Circe. Episode 15, Circe. I was immediately struck on page 357 by the emergence of the ghost of Bloom's father, Rudolph. It was fascinating to me to realize that Bloom's son, Rudy, was named after his father, Rudolph. Not only this, but line 261 reveals that Bloom himself was named after his grandfather, Leopold. I found this to be an incredibly subtle detail that accurately reflects the nature of many Jewish families. In Jewish traditions, the naming of a child is very important because it supposedly informs what kind of person the child will grow up to be. Many people are named David or Isaac in hope of producing a child that is pious, courageous, and a leader. More interestingly, European Jews' naming conventions believe that it is very bad luck to name a child after a living family member, and usually only allows a name to continue if the family member is already dead. This suggests that Rudy was born after the death of Bloom's father, and that Bloom himself was likely born after the death of his grandfather. I also was astounded to learn that Bloom himself was not a full-blooded Jew. Judaism is a religion that is passed through the mother, and the fact that Ellen Bloom is a Catholic suggests that Bloom was actually born a typical Catholic Irishman. This means that every fight that Bloom has had over the course of the day is more complicated than originally thought, since he literally fulfills the requirements that the citizen creates as criteria for an Irishman. However, this shows how strong the currents of anti-Semitism were in the beginning of the 20th century. Even someone who was technically Catholic, but was culturally Jewish, was seen as a foreign alien that could not fit within good Christian society. In the modern day, Bloom's style of casual cultural Judaism is becoming more and more common. I myself was technically born to a Jewish mother, but my commitment to the faith is more similar to Bloom's than it is to, say, a Hasidic Jew. I think it's an interesting commentary that the book that is seen to define modernism makes its character have such a unique relationship to religion. Bloom's father chastises him for abandoning the religion of his ancestors, while the citizens of Dublin lambast and insult him precisely because he is Jewish. In essence, Judaism is like one of Joyce's nets that entraps somebody and refuses to let them go, even if they do not actually fit within the confines of this category. I guess it wasn't a uniquely Catholic phenomenon after all. Thank you for listening. In Eumaeus, we take a moment of rest to sober up and continue our journey. Episode 16, Eumaeus. I enjoyed the humble yet inaccurate description of Bloom as an Orthodox Samaritan at the beginning of the chapter. Clearly, the narrator of this chapter is attempting to suggest that Bloom is a quintessential example of a good Samaritan. Yet the theology surrounding Samaritans results in this description being a little off. Orthodox means right practice in Greek, and often refers to the most correct or most common form of a religion. Samaritans, on the other hand, are a famous offshoot of the standard Jewish religion. Situated in the center of Israel with the fully Jewish Israelites to the south, who looked down upon Samaritans because they were culturally and theologically different from the common practices of Judaism at the time. There is a potential saving grace of Bloom's faux pas at the beginning of this chapter, however. Samaritans are considered to be the Israelites 
who remained in the Holy Land following the exile of many Israelites in Babylonian captivity. During the years of the Babylonian diaspora, the Samaritans continued many original practices of Judaism and maintained their own versions of holy texts. The Samaritans actually believed that the Israelites who returned from Babylonian captivity were the divergent form of Judaism, since many revisions and additions were made during the captivity that changed the original practice. In this interpretation, then, Samaritans may actually be the originally orthodox form of Judaism. However, I will still not give Bloom credit for his mistake. There's no chance in hell in that this description was actually anything more than a narrator trying to wax poetic. Learn, learning in the previous chapter that Bloom was actually half-Catholic, the religious imagery seen in this chapter makes the understanding of Bloom that much more difficult. Bloom offers Stephen a coffee and a bread bun in a short of makeshift communion, and admonishes him to stay away from prostitution and get onto a better path. Although he is clearly more well-meaning in his counselings for Stephen, I cannot help but think of how Bloom looked down upon the religious society members in Lestragonians, who told all that who told all those that walked by to seek salvation in the Lord. This may resemble just how impossible it is for any members of Dublin society to escape the nets of religion and morality that the church has imposed, no matter what no matter whether you're a fanatic or a Jew. Thank you for tuning in. Our hero will finally complete his journey home in the penultimate chapter of the novel, Ithaca. Episode 17, Ithaca. There were very few substantial allusions to Bloom's identity as a Jew throughout this chapter, or even the idea of racial indifference between the two men. The first reference that I was able to find was Bloom's question as to how to prepare tea for a Gentile. I think it is humorous how even an act as minuscule as offering a man tea in your own home is susceptible to religious or racial difference. Although the distinction of preparation for a Gentile is made, it appears as though the process of making the actual tea is indistinguishable from the natural way of making tea for anyone else. This Gentile preparation of tea is most likely only meant to be humorous in its specificity, but I like to think that it reflects how similar the two men are, despite their established difference. Either that, or Bloom has a hilariously different way of making tea that would require him to proceed in a different manner for a guest. The second reference to the difference between the two men comes at line 525. Did either openly allude to their racial indifference? Neither. This is a heartwarming moment where the attacks and suspicions surrounding Bloom throughout the day melts away into the short-lived companionship and camaraderie of the two men in the wee hours of the night. They discuss individuals, as they both knew, such as Mrs. Reardon, and talk about their youths without insinuating that either has had a different perspective on the matter because their religious difference. I think this is a short yet impactful moment where Stephen and Bloom are allowed to experience one another without any of the preconceived notions that arise between two men that barely know each other. Bloom further discusses how he has actually been baptized as a Catholic because his mother was a Christian. Even though Bloom was baptized, he is still culturally Jewish and assumes that Stephen will treat him differently because of this. Instead, Stephen recognizes the inherent paradox that is Leopold Bloom, and accepts him either way. I like to think that Stephen recognizes Bloom as a fellow individual who struggles with the nets cast upon him by society, and refuses to allow himself to be defined by outward definitions. This is likely one of the reasons why the friendship between these two is allowed to blossom. Bloom's journey throughout the novel has been an arduous one, filled with adversity and challenge, it is refreshing within these final pages of his narrative to witness how a wandering Jew of the early 20th century can adventure out his front door and return back triumphant, never losing his identity, and staying strong in his love of himself and for others. It's a shining example for all, including myself, to follow in the journeys of our own lives.
Thank you for listening. Listen in to the next episode to venture into Molly Bloom's psyche in Penelope and finally conclude our journey. Episode 18, Penelope. Even though I don't consider myself supremely religious, I have to say that even I was slightly scandalized while reading this chapter. The aggressive and unabashed sexuality of Molly Bloom is a transgressive and subversive force, even in a modern context. Her interior thoughts and desires would be enough for both priest and rabbi to fall to their knees in atonement. Even though it is incredibly banal for women and men to have these sorts of sexual thoughts, the arrangement of Molly's inner monologue is intense and detailed enough for me to honestly understand why early Jews felt uncomfortable enough to force women to cleanse themselves after sex and childbirth. Although this episode made me somewhat uncomfortable, I believe that it is integral to the modern story to understand that these thoughts and desires are truly banal and not something to be prayed away. It is the acceptance of our sexual deviance and thoughts that is tantamount in the modern individual's quest to overcome religious dogma and embrace the aspects of, of ourselves that make us truly human. I found it fascinating that Molly turns out to be the true Jew in the relationship. Her mother was a Spanish Jew that Major Tweedy eventually married and bore Molly with. If there was ever a group of Jews that were as persecuted as the early Jews in the Roman era, it would be the Jews of Iberia. The Spanish Inquisition was ruthless in its policing of Jews within society, and their eventual expulsion from the peninsula in 1492 was even more brutal. Although Jews likely had it a little better following the end of the Inquisition in the 19th century, this relationship was certainly by no means traditional, nor favorably seen by neighbors. Yet, I think the dynamic of Molly's family is emblematic of what Joyce seeks to display in this novel. Major Tweedy, an oppressed Irishman at the service of the British Army, Lunito Laredo, a Gibraltar Jew oppressed for her religion, and Molly, a woman who is scorned and laughed at for her sexual deviance. The entire nuclear family of the Tweedies reflects the many types of oppression that were present in the early modern period political, religious, and sexual. Despite the immense pressure placed upon Molly at the intersection of all these outside forces, the sentences of Penelope ring triumphant and empowered. She doesn't feel forced to make Bloom's breakfast, or to break off her affair with Boylan, or to hold any allegiance to any specific political affiliation. She decides what she wants to do based on how she feels and what she wants for herself. Despite her abrasiveness, Molly is, in essence, the model of a modern individual based on the themes that Joyce has been fostering throughout the novel. That is why her tentative acceptance of love is so poignant at the end. Despite the entire fabric of the world blowing her in multiple directions, she decides that it is her own consciousness and her own love that will dictate her decisions. And if that doesn't reflect modern Jewish excellence, then nothing else will. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope that you have managed to take away some new lessons and understandings thanks to the application of a distinctly Jewish lens. I'm Harold Koss, and this has been Dubliners and Diaspora. <laughs>